Our Lord, we do think with great anticipation of the reality of those words that you will come. We do not know when. We do not know the timing. But we do know that it is. And we do know that you will come for us as your people, that you will bring us to yourself. And as Paul told the Thessalonians, we will meet you in the air and we will forever be with the Lord. And that, again, is our great hope. And this table that we celebrate this morning is a reminder of that hope instituted by you, yourself, carried on by your people throughout the ages, even as it is to this day and will be until you do come. And so, Lord, we greatly look forward to that. Keep us faithful until then. Keep us anticipating and working to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And use this word that we will open, that we will look at this morning from Solomon, given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to hasten us on in faithfulness to that day. So be our teacher, Holy Spirit, we pray, and our sanctifier. To the glory of Christ, to the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, again, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, The original intention was to begin in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, and to complete all the way to the end of chapter 2, verse 26, in one message. Um, That didn't happen, but we are uh, hopefully going to close it up this morning, looking at verses primarily verses 12 through 26. Last week, uh, we looked at verses 1 through 11. And we are looking in this this portion of Scripture, again, to Solomon's attempt to find meaning and purpose in life through the enjoyment of all that this created world has to offer and the whole panorama of creaturely delights. He sought to find the purpose and the meaning for his existence, for his being here, for what life is about. And, of course, he came up empty But he doesn't leave us in a place of emptiness. He leads us to a place of conclusion, a place where wisdom should take us as well. Let me introduce this section by giving you a quote. I noted last time a quote by an ancient, an ancient, an old philosopher who who noted that all men ultimately are seeking happiness, that everything we do is, in the end, a search for happiness, some kind of pleasure to our soul, whether we do things that are Hedonistic, we'll look at that uh, a little bit today in terms of just pursuing pleasure, or if we do things even that will cause our pain, like death, uh, suicide, the man who hangs himself was the example he gave, are all to bring some kind of peace and enjoyment to the soul. Let me give you another side of that this morning with another quote, one that you're familiar with. Many of you may have heard this. It's by an author named C.S. Lewis. He says this. He says, if there lurks in, the most, in most modern minds the notion that to desire our good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it as a bad thing is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is not a part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, doling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud piles in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too 
easily pleased. That is a great statement. In some sense, it connects or it connects with the idea of the pursuit of happiness and offers a, a tweak to it, a nuance. Yes, our souls desire happiness, but the claim here by C.S. Lewis, which we'll explore this morning, is that really it's not that our desires are too strong when we go about pursuing all the pleasures of this world, but actually it's a manifestation of our desires are too weak to pursue those things which are truly for the good of our soul, namely all of those things that are found in God. God and in Christ. And that's really where C.S. Lewis is taking it. In other words, saying we're far too easily pleased with earthly creations, with earthly things, with created pleasures, when what stands before us is the infinite pleasure of God himself that we too often neglect in pursuit of lesser things. So actually, the pursuit of creaturely joys is an expression of our unbelief and weakness, and to pursue all that God is for us in Christ is an expression of what is truly wise and good and noble and dignified and for the blessing of our soul. So if we were to sum up this this morning, I would put it this way, that creation holds no meaning apart from the creator, but in a right relationship with God, creation is full of the pleasures enjoyed for his glory. And in fact, lead us back to him. Let me read a few selections uh, of our passage, and then we'll look at it more closely. Uh, let me begin uh, in verse 10. All the, this is the summary of Solomon's fruit, or the fruit of Solomon's search for meaning through pleasure. He says, all that my eyes, in verse 10, desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was no profit under the sun." So he turned in verse 12 to consider madness and folly. And what was the end of that? Verse 17. So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. But what is the conclusion of all of this? Where does wisdom come in to bring light into what is otherwise a dark perspective. He says this in verse 24. For there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Now the title of these last three messages have been this, Life Without and With God. And indeed, Solomon gives us a sample of both of those, what it means to pursue life without God and what it means to pursue life under the sovereign hand of God in light of who God is. And just by way of review, verses 1 through 11 then was his search, as I mentioned already, and you remember well enough, was his search to find that meaning through what we would call hedonism. Hedonism. Now, I didn't mention that, I don't think, last week, but that is the idea of it. Hedonism, you might be familiar with that word. 
is simply this idea. It is, it is the, the thinking that tends to say that the only pleasure worth having is sensual in nature. And by sensual, I don't mean only sexual. That's often how that word is used. But sensuality has this idea, that which can be perceived and experienced through our senses, sight, sound, feeling, taste, touch, and smell. That's the idea of sensuality, ultimately. And hedonism says, well, that is the only place for joy that tends to look at the world and says it is through this kind of sensuality, this sensuous experience of creation that meaning is found and that there is a purpose for living. But as Solomon noted, it ultimately is a futile pursuit. And there's a reason that it's a futile pursuit. And this is what runs throughout Scripture and particularly, of course, throughout Ecclesiastes. Why is that a futile pursuit? Why can meaning not be found simply through the senses or sensuality or hedonism? And it is because by our very nature, we were made to be in relationship with an infinite being, God himself. Therefore, nothing finite could ever be truly a satisfaction to us. It is against our nature as human beings. We think it is our nature to pursue that kind of sensual pleasure. But what Scripture teaches us is that ultimately that is the opposite of our human nature. Our nature is primarily spiritual, made to have fellowship with God. That is God's created intention. That's why we're here. And if we have neglected that to try to find satisfaction in something finite, something created, something temporary, then we are doomed from the beginning. It's against our nature. Jesus alone can complete us. He is perfect humanity, and we who have found our life in him and pursue him realize that Christ alone is our satisfaction. We were made to live the life that Christ lived, and we were made as his creatures to live that life ultimately in Christ, in Christ and in sharing in his life. So it is not that fits with C.S. Lewis's ideas, that it's not that our desires are too great. It is, in fact, that our desires are too small. It is, in fact, when we try to fill them with earthly things, we are living contrary to what we were created to enjoy and to our own nature. And I would just make this as, a, as a one last point before we move on. This is not only an error of fallen man who rejects the sufficiency of God for the soul. It's also the last desperate grasp of a society who has lost any sense of the reality of God and absolute truth. I think that's part of what we're seeing now. Absolute truth is something that, uh, by and large, has been eradicated from our cultural consciousness, certainly from our discussions. We are a people who live primarily by feelings. You could just have many examples of this, but you even think of our political discourse, how much of it is an appeal to the senses rather than to the mind and rationale and logic and substantive argument. Very little. It's, a pure, it's, a, it's an appeal to feelings. It's an appeal to self-identification, not to what we can actually observe to be fruitful and effective to our minds. And we are a culture that has largely rejected God. God, those who believe in Christ, those who name the name of Christ are being more and more at the perimeters, are put more and more at the perimeters of cultural, culture and society and are seen as strange, not only strange, but as a threat and so if you don't have meaning in God and you don't have meaning in a creator, 
There's many other points to make with that. Ultimately, you're going to search for meaning in something else. And where does our culture turn? Well, primarily to sex and media. Those are the two things that seem to dominate our culture. And the problem is exasperated when the church itself has failed to be that light, the voice of truth in our age. We noted last week that a mark of the church at the end of the age in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And unfortunately, the church that will be a part of that time, instead of being a voice for truth, will be filled with those who give people not what will confront those wrong desires, but rather appeal to them. He says, a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And so we as a church have a responsibility then to proclaim Christ and to proclaim Christ and absolute truth, no matter how unpopular it might be, not as from a sense of rebellion, but from a sense of what is true, from a sense of faithfulness, and knowing that is what our culture needs more than anything. Now Solomon shows us then the futility of that, that futility of turning your back on the sufficiency of God and his word for search for meaning in the world. And so that was his ultimate conclusion. I considered all my activities, and he says in verse 11, it was vanity and striving after the wind. But now he turns and he gives another aspect of that in verses 12 through 17, namely this, that there is the fruitless search for meaning in this world because of the reality of death. Because of the reality of death. There's the fruitless search for meaning in light of the reality of death. He says in verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. Again, that is having exhausted the search for meaning and pleasure. He now offers a further evaluation on the futility of thinking that meaning then is found in wisdom. What can be accomplished through intellectual pursuits? What can be accomplished as he can, uh, through the application of the mind to this world? And he'll see that again, that ultimately has some benefit, but it has no real answers. Now, he says at the second part here, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? This is really notoriously a difficult verse to translate, but the idea mainly of it is this, that no one who comes after me, he's saying, will be able to explore all that this world has to offer to the same degree and with the same intensity that I have. He was a man of unlimited resources. And he is one who used every advantage and every resource for that very purpose, to discover what this world has. And so the idea is, what will anybody else do after me? What will someone else discover that I have not discovered? What kind of pleasure will someone pursue that I have not pursued? What advantage can be gained from this world and explored that I have not explored myself? And the answer is, of course, nothing. Nothing. So what will the man do who comes after the king except what has already been done? What more could you seek to find and hope to find that I've not already sought out? Of course, he's not here commending foolishness or the failure to pursue knowledge. He's merely exposing its emptiness as ultimate meaning for ultimate meaning. That's the idea. And he says that then in the following verse. 
that he doesn't say that wisdom has no value in life. As a matter of fact, he commends wisdom. He says it's better to be wise than foolish. I saw in verse 13 that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. Why? He answers in verse 14, because the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. That being said, the wise man is still in a better position in life. He acknowledges that. Wisdom enables one to navigate the circumstances of life, to make best use of the resources at one's disposal for one's own advantage, and that is a good thing. By contrast, foolishness, one said, or the foolish are like the blind. They have no idea how to live and hence make a mess of their lives. It only leads to their ruin, to their frustration, and to those things that are ultimately to the harm of their life. So it's better to be wise than it is to be foolish. But again, the end of verse 14, wisdom is ultimately meaning, empty of meaning in itself. Why? Well, again, we just read it. Because I know that one fate befalls them both. Death is the great leveler that puts everything into perspective. That's why later he'll counsel, and we'll get there eventually, in verse 4 of chapter 7, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Why? Because the house of mourning helps put everything into perspective, and it reminds us that this is our end, that death is ultimately our end. And so Solomon here, he kind of jerks our necks back into reality. He kind of forces us and kind of rubs our nose in the reality of death and says, think about this, consider this. He wants us to realize the futility of finding answers in a world that is groaning under the weight of the curse of sin. So death is the ultimate curse for sin and it lies over all humanity and it's what we need to realize to put all things into perspective. The emphasis falls here then on Paul's commentary on this reality that creation was subjected to futility. It was subjected to the slavery of corruption or slavery to corruption. Now everyone is aware of death. It's not a hard, it probably wouldn't be too hard to find somebody that would agree with this statement. I know that we're all going to die, life is short, those kind of things. It's not hard to, to uh, convince someone that they're going to die, that that is a reality. But I would submit that few in our society and few of us really think seriously about the reality of death. That we really contemplate it as it deserves. It's, it's kind of like... Those who maybe grew up in the, the, the church and say they understand the gospel why their lives are as far away from Christ as one could be. And they say, well, I know the gospel. I, I said this. Many of you all said this before, before I was actually saved. Uh, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm not perfect. Jesus died for my sin and so forth. In other words, there's a knowledge that I acknowledge those things are true, but it has no real grip on the life. It has no effect on the way one thinks and feels and pursues and what they love. In other words, it's not a reality within them. And I think that people think of death a lot in uh, that way, too. People will say, I know I will die. I know I will die. But yet, do you realize how monumental of a statement that is? Do you realize how significant that is? Do you realize how all of your life, in terms of earthly existence, is put into perspective by that one fact that we will die? 
that one fate befalls us both? Have you ever seriously thought about its implications? One says this. I'm going to see if I can pull this quote up. Now I have control. Let's see if I use it well. All right, here it is. Yep. Okay, so it is one thing to believe, he says, it is one thing to believe that all men are mortal, accepting the reality of death in intellectual terms, but it is something entirely different to recognize that we ourselves must die. In other words, will you personalize that truth? This is something every soldier confronts in wartime. Sooner or later, everyone comes to the same shocking realization. One day I am going to die. My heart will beat one last time. My lungs will excel, excel one final breath. And that will be the end of my days on this earth. So that's a pretty significant fact. And Solomon says here that it's wise to realize this as we contemplate our pursuits and the values that we have in life and the things that we put great value in. Realize this, that you will die. Death is the great leveler. Now, at the end of the book, Solomon's going to make a conclusion and, and cause us to think about that in terms of, in, in light of the accountability that we'll have to give to God for our life. But here he takes it into a different direction. He makes this observation about death in light of our pursuits, namely this, that death reminds us that we're going to be forgotten. We're just not that significant. That's his point. Look at what he says. Then I said to myself, as the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Verse 15, why then have I been extremely wise? And so I said to myself, this too is vanity. Verse 16, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. In other words, both are forgotten. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten and how the wise man and the fool alike die. Can anybody in this room right now, if I were to quiz you or pick randomly someone, name at least 30 to 40 of our U.S. presidents? Can anybody do that? I could probably do that in third grade. I couldn't do that now. You know, and you have to memorize that list. And even if you could remember 30 or 40 of them, could you remember anything significant even about their presidency, the, the apex accomplishment of their life? Could you remember any, in, anything they did by policy or anything they did to change our nation or this world? Could you even do that with five of them? How about this? Could anybody in here, if I were to randomly poll you, uh, remember anything about your great-great-grandfather or grandparents? Remember anything that they accomplished? anything that they did, anything that was lasting or significant? I'm going to guess the answer for most of us would be no. Why? They lived their life, they died, and they were forgotten, and they moved on. And that's Solomon's point. When we think about life and we contemplate it in, life, in, 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 in light of death, we have to remember that we're going to be forgotten our works are going to be forgotten, our personalities, our accomplishments, our loves, our joys, our relationships, all of those things are going to be forgotten. It's just not that significant. With all the intellect, advantages, and effort, even in the light of death, one may hope for this advantage, that I will be remembered, that I will have something lasting, I will have a legacy, some immortal, immortal vestige of my life to resound throughout the ages so that I will have some kind of significance. At least I could rest in that. And he says, no, no, that's, 
that's not going to happen either. Putting it maybe through the lens of uh, intellect, which is part of Solomon's focus here, one says this, that the intellect, there it is, the intellect's real hope is that he will achieve lasting fame and be long remembered for his great contributions. The teacher pronounces all this as an illusion. Future generations will no more remember the scholar than they will the beggar on the street. It might have significance in that time and in that person's life, but in the ultimate scheme of life, there really is no significance to it. Now, for some people, this may not matter too much. They just simply may not care. Uh, as a counterpoint to this, don't turn there, but I immediately thought of Hezekiah and 2 Kings. Hezekiah and 2 Kings uh, was going to die, and so the Lord spared his life uh, after his prayer and told him he was going to live for longer. Uh, and so he just, that was great news. And then he gets some messengers that come down from the king of Babylon and they go and he just in his pride goes and he shows them and this is Second Kings 20. He shows them all that was found in his treasury, all that was found in his, as king, all of his wealth to impress them. That was foolish of him to do that. It was an act of pride. And so then Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and he says this, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, if we're thinking in light of Solomon, you would hear that news and you'd think, that is a bummer. I'm broken, I'm crushed, here's my kingdom and all that was good that I accomplished and it's just going to be carried away, my sons are going to have no lasting kingdom after this and what a, what a terrible mess this is. But what did Hezekiah, now that would have been the perspective of Ecclesiastes, of a thinking person, but what does Hezekiah say? Hezekiah says this, ah, wow, the word of the Lord is good, it's great, why? Because he says this, for the thought is, is it not so that there will be peace and truth in my days? That's kind of a contrast. It is true that somebody can get through life and say, hey, everything's fine. I'm completely happy with that. I don't really care what comes after me because I'll be dead. I'm simply going to enjoy what I have and whatever will be will be after that. But for a thinking person, for a person who actually cares and thinks deeply about life, who thinks deeply about death, who thinks deeply about meaning and purpose and what it's all about, this is a significant concern. This is a significant concern. And so it is here. And so Solomon says, it's fruitless to find meaning in life, not only through pleasure, but through any sense that what you do will be Remembered, because death is the great leveler. And then he gives another. He says, it's fruitless to search for meaning in a lasting legacy, verses 18 through 23. He says this. We read it earlier, verse 18. I hated, I hated all the fruit of my labor. What did that produce for me when he looked back after it? Despising it, actually. He said, I hated the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will control, have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. This too is vanity. And so the other part of it is, is that 
The realization that whatever we did in life that brought success can just as easily be lost in those who come after us. For those with whom that would be wealth, there could be any other accomplishments. He tends to put it more in that context. For him, it's all going to be lost. It's all going to be lost. So what's the point of it? One noted this. I didn't check the statistic, but this is at least what one person said. Uh, that this is noted that second generation of inherited wealth uh, rarely builds on the same success as the first. This is the, the quote. Statistics say that in 60% of cases, 60% of cases, inherited wealth is completely gone by the end of the second generation. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Inherited wealth, according to this one author, is completely gone by the end of the second generation. Why? Because they didn't see that as something to labor for, only as something to be enjoyed, and it's just squandered in pleasure and fruitless kind of investments and so on and so forth. There's a lack of the, the diligence and the work and the labor that created that wealth. And this is certainly true in the case of Solomon, and, and, and it's almost no doubt that he had this in mind, not that he knew the specifics, but God had told him, because of your sin, your kingdom is going to be taken away, not all of it, but there's going to be ruin brought into your life. And this is a fact, exactly what happened in Solomon's case with his son, Rehoboam. All that Solomon built, all of those uh, just amazing sort of accounting of his wealth and all of the things that he accomplished, he was told it's all going to be gone. It's all going to be gone. It's going to be gone by the foolishness of his son and his father's wealth was lost to an invading army. Let me give you just one account. We won't read through the whole thing for the sake of time. Uh, but needless to say, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was not wise as his father had been. He was foolish, and it was shortly after his father's death, he was given the chance to listen to wise counselors or to listen to his peers alone and to make things, when the people came and wanted him to make kind of ease things up, uh, the pressure on them and the workload and so on and so forth. Rather than making it easier, he said, I'm going to make it harder. I'm the, I'm the king, you know, kind of attitude. You're going to do what I say. And uh, people said, forget that. The nation split. You had 10 tribes that went up to the northern kingdom. It was like that way for many generations. They had only bad king after bad king, conflict even with the southern tribes, and eventually they were carried away by the king of Assyria in 722 BC. It's a, a sad, sad event in the history of Israel. But here in 1 Kings 14, it says this in verse 25 through 26. You can just listen. It says, Now it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and he took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Gone. Just like that. Because of his disobedience, Rehoboam was not a faithful king and God disciplined him, not only by the nation splitting, but then by carrying away all of these riches and this wealth. In fact, out of all of Solomon's vast and impressive works, how many stand today? The great Solomonic temple, this great achievement of the ancient world, this thing that nations wanted to come and see as a part of the achievements of Solomon, where is it now? Destroyed, destroyed. In the 6th century B.C., 586 B.C., the king of Babylon came down, wiped it all out. Terrible way that he starved out the people, destroyed the temple, burned it with fire. All 
gone. All of it was gone. So as vast as impressive as they were, they were all gone and no one no one even remembered or just a few even remembered what that glory was when they rebuilt the second temple after God brought back in the generation after exile. And then by the time they were gone, nobody remembered it. All meaningless, he says. Who knows? Who knows afterwards? One will build it up, one will create wealth, and then another will come in and lose it all, the second generation. And he knew that in a very personal way. And even those that do stand will in the end end in ruin. And so he says in verse 22, what is the value then of sacrifice in light of this? What does a man get in all his labor and his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. This too is vanity. What does it accomplish? What is all of those sleepless nights? What are all of those missed holidays with your families? What is all of the sacrifice to achieve and to achieve and to achieve? What is it ultimately worth when you realize that as soon as you're gone, it's going to be gone? And at the end of the day, this person can look at their life and say, what did I spend it on? What actual value was it? This is the person who robs himself of pleasures and rest only to realize He missed what was the most important. And for that matter, you may not even have time for that kind of realization. For in Luke chapter 12, you'll remember, and I'm just going to mention it, Jesus tells the parable of what about the rich man who stores up so much and he accumulates and he accumulates and his only concern is how am I going to store all that I have? How am I going to keep it? He gives this Uh, to those who are affected with greed and covetousness. And he says to this person who says, I've had many goods laid up for many years to come. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? It's going to be gone. You you can't even plan on for when it's going to be gone. And then it's going to be gone, or you're going to be gone, and then it's going to be left for someone else, exactly Solomon's point. And then it's going to be lost. And so what is the moral lesson of that? Jesus says this, So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Now notice here, he's not saying that the treasures themselves are evil and that one should not have them or that Solomon should not have been wealthy. In fact, that wealth was God's blessing to him. It was God's blessing to him. But he knew the first part and not the second part, but is also not rich toward God, is not rich toward God. And that really then is the key. That is the core issue. We, Trish and I, were talking last night, and... uh, in our conversation, it was a, a statement was made that was kind of clarifying uh, in some ways uh, to this. Uh, they uh, recently were, there was a, they were on a trip. Or she was around and there was a famous movie star anyway, or no, singer, whatever. They were rich, they were wealthy. They had a big house. Okay, that was mentioned. And, and the, but here was the statement, here was the idea, that in the kingdom of the world, that person is successful, but in the kingdom of God, they're at the bottom of the rung. They're at the bottom of the rung. 
Because at the end of the day, whatever you achieve in the kingdom of the world and whatever accolades and whatever wealth, it's going to be lost and the kingdom that remains forever is the kingdom of God. And so we want to be great then in the kingdom of God. And how are we great in the kingdom of God? By being a slave, by being a servant like him who gave his life as a ransom for many, who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life for our sin. So these things are going to go away. You'll remember that same teaching of Jesus recorded in Matthew's gospel. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, those treasures that will not be taken away, those treasures that cannot be lost. In other words, live in light of God's purposes. Now, I want to just mention this quickly because I want to move on and get to the end, but let me just note one other passage here on this point. Actually, the the whole psalm is really uh, addressing this very issue. Psalm 49, and he addresses here those who expend all of their energy and their time and their days to boast in the abundance, verse 6, of their riches, to trust in their wealth. Is this not the danger that the wealthy fall into? But he says in verse 12, but his pomp will not, oh, well, here's, he says their inner thought, verse 11, is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. And they have called their lands by their own names. And so what is that temptation of wealth to say, look what I have achieved, look what I can rest in, look how my legacy will continue on and on and on. This is is reflecting Solomon. And he says in verse 12, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve of their words. Ah, tell me if this sounds familiar. Verse 14, as sheep, they are appointed for shield. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright in heart shall rule over them in the morning and their form shall be for shield to consume. And there it is. And there it is. He says, so while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he will go to the generation of his fathers and they will never see light. That's the reflection of the wisdom of Solomon. While all of that glory is enjoyed now, the idea is that it will last, but it will not. It will go away. And so a wise person realizes this. And he says, just one word. From Timothy, give you from Timothy, he says this, 1 Timothy 6. What does wisdom look like then? Wisdom looks like this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly surprises us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It's not the wealth, it's the trust in the wealth. It's not the hard work and, and accomplishment, it is the trust in those is bringing ultimate meaning. But he takes a positive turn, he doesn't leave us there. Look at verse 24 through 26. And note secondly here, the fruitful enjoyment of life in knowing the creator. The fruitful enjoyment of life in knowing the creator. He says, but... The idea is there is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. 
Now, this seems to stand in contrast. He's going to have several passages throughout Ecclesiastes, which are sometimes referred to as the carpe diem classes, the, the seize the day kind of passages, and they, and they are just that. They are those passages that remind us because all of these things are going to be, because there is no lasting importance and meaning in the things of this world alone, enjoy the things that you have. He says, in fact, there is nothing better. And the idea is not meant as an absolute statement of life. That would lead you right back into hedonism. The, the point here when he says that is this, that there is nothing better in this world under the curse than to enjoy the good things that God does give you. Of course, that's going to be qualified. But it is a blessing for a person to enjoy these things. And so he says, look, if you've worked hard, if you put in the labor, if you've made good decisions, if you've put in the work and are bearing the fruit of it, then you can, in verse 24, tell yourself that your labor is good. It's good. It's good to work, and it's good to enjoy the fruit of that work. As a matter of fact, he again says, it is from the hand of God. He'll later say, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy in verse 26. And so again, there's a strong link here to the doctrine of creation. God looked at the end of the, at the, end of the sixth day of creation, and what did he say? Very good. It's very good. Statement is an acknowledgement of that, that God designed work and the creaturely pleasures for man's enjoyment and his glory. It's a key part of the future promises of the blessings of the coming kingdom. You could look at Isaiah 65, 21 through 23. This was a promise to them. You know, every man's going to work and be free from fear of danger. Every man's going to enjoy the fruit of his labor in this coming day, sit under the shade of his vine. And here's an important point. In saying all of this about the futility of pleasure is that God is not anti-pleasure. God is not against pleasure. It's not like he's the God of the killjoy, cosmic killjoy God who says, I don't want you enjoying yourself. And if you enjoy yourself, pff, you watch out because I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you for that. That's not at all who God is. God created pleasure. We sometimes act as if pleasure were a result of the fall, as if the devil is the one who created pleasure. He's the one who created happiness. I heard it said, uh, and I think I mentioned this before in one of our series, sometimes we act like the devil created sex, as if, as if the only thing that could be enjoyable about it is what is evil. It's like, no, this is God's creation. God created pleasure, delight, beauty, taste, smell, filling, satisfaction of accomplishment, enjoyment of sex within the covenant of marriage. He created all of those things and for the purpose of our pleasure and our enjoyment. God did not create a world that was anti-pleasure, but full of pleasures and glory and delights and satisfaction and happiness and those things that are be pleasing to us. God created those things. They're from him. He's not anti-pleasure. They are not a result of the fall, but they are a result of creation that he pronounced very good. Very good. 
So the problem is not with these things. It's not with pleasures. It's not with all of the created delights. We mentioned that before. But the problem is with the corruption of sin in our hearts. It is the fall of humanity that is burdened with the reality of sin that takes these good things and wants them without reference to God, who wants to take all of these good things and say, thank you very much. Now I don't want you. I'm going to take them, enjoy them myself. That's the problem. And that's what we see, and that's why the world has perverted all of these good things and made what is good into something that is ugly and corrupt and destroying and miserable, ultimately. But it's not the created things themselves. It is the disordered affections within our hearts, the disordered priorities within our hearts that take good things and make them bad because we use them in wrong ways, which is what Solomon is essentially teaching us. So in contrast to Solomon's wrong use of these things, this is essentially a call to commit contentment, to be satisfied with the good things that God gives you. Now, this said, before we look at that a little bit more, there are two errors that need to be related that noted up front. Two errors that need to be related to God's creation, the enjoyment of God's creation up front. And again, I'll just have to mention these briefly. The first, well, the two, I'll tell them. One is asceticism and the other is idolatry. So one wrong response to the created pleasures and the joys and the delights of God's good things of creation is asceticism, is asceticism. And asceticism is the idea that true spirituality is found in denying earthly pleasures and in, in living uh, apart from anything that might actually make me happy, essentially, that I might actually enjoy too much. No, the spiritual person has to deny all of those things. I certainly, I have to feel guilty if I had actually too much pleasure in something that God gave. As a matter of fact, Paul addresses this directly, as you'll remember this in Colossians chapter 2. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, in verse 20, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all which refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teaching of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You can flagellate yourself till the cows come home and it's not going to deal with the desires of your heart. It's not. Asceticism is not the answer. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy 4, he's going to say it's the doctrine of demons that teaches that is the way. It's just another form of works righteousness, really. Our doing to be accepted by God. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like if you had a friend. If you had a friend or someone, it could be a spouse or just someone that you wanted to bless. And you know what? You're like, I'm just going to splurge on them. I just want to bless them. I'm going to take them to a nice dinner, maybe to like Ruth's Chris. And I'm just going to get them the best things that are on the menu. Cost is not an issue. I just want you to enjoy yourself. I want you to be happy. And you take this friend and you get dressed up and you, you get them in the restaurant and you lay all of the menu items before them that they want. And it's happy. And they're there and they go... Oh, this is really good, and I'll eat it, but I am not going to enjoy it because I don't want it to come between my relationship with you. And you'd be like, what? 
What are you talking about? That's, that's a silly idea if we put it that way. But that is, in a sense, what asceticism does. God fills us with these good things and nope, no, 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 God. I am not going to let this blessing come between my love for you. I'm going to deny them all and I'm going to be steadfast in my joy. It sounds spiritual, but it really isn't. It's foolish. But it has a history within the church, as we know, particularly in the first few centuries. And as I already noted, it's a teaching of false doctrine. It doesn't work for a variety of reasons, but one is this, is because sanctification, and this is really important for us to understand in this light. And I know I've mentioned this in different ways throughout, but sanctification is not primarily focused on the negative. Yes, there is, we have to deny ourselves. Yes, there is self-control. Yes, we have to cut off what is sinful in our life, and that's a battle that we're engaged in. But sanctification, if it's focused only on sin and only on sin, is ultimately just going to be this miserable pursuit. Sanctification is primarily about what we love. It's about loving Christ. It's about delighting in him. It's about seeing his glory. It's about loving him. And then as we increase in our love for Christ and we begin to understand his glory and we begin to understand grace more and more and more, then we don't want to sin, and sin becomes more hateful to us, and we despise it more and more. But you don't grow in holiness by always focusing on the sin. The negative, the idea that where Scripture continually points us is to gaze on Christ, is to think on Christ and his goodness and his glory. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to do that in Colossians. He says, those things have no value against fleshly indulgence, but what does he say right after this? Set your mind on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. When Christ is revealed, we'll be revealed with him. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And all of that's going to be revealed when he comes. He says, focus on Christ. And so asceticism is not the answer. It is to think of God's goodness, to enjoy God's goodness. True spirituality receives God's gifts as expression of his goodness and enjoys God in them. That's the key. The second part, way that we fail sometimes, is by idolatry. And idolatry, then, is to go on the opposite end of asceticism and put too much joy in the good things God gives, to make them too important and give too much of our time and our energy to them. Idolatry is the tendency to make too much of earthly pleasures so that it becomes more desirable and real to us. That's an important point, is where earthly pleasures become more real to us than the spiritual delights of fellowship with God. The spiritual delights of fellowship with God. For those who are theologians or church historians, you might connect with with the idea, idolatry, with also a sort of antinomianism, an anti-law, a sort of freed from the constraints of the law sort of pursuit of pleasure, or licentiousness, which is just being given over to it. The most classic and piercing text along these lines is actually found in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. Let me just read it to you. Jeremiah chapter 2 says this, you're familiar with this, be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, and be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so he says, that is a great evil. We have endless resources of joy in God. He says, you have a covenant God who's a fountain of living water and you've rejected him and gone after what is ultimately futile and empty. When the greatest pleasures in your covenant keeping God are before you and you neglect them. And we as Christians can do that. 
We have endless resources of joy in Christ. Jesus told the the woman at the well, become a a well of living water within you, this endless resource of spiritual delight and fellowship with God. The problem is, where we fail, is that that kind of joy, which is usually our truest joy, and this is actually where C.S. Lewis was getting to in that quote uh, that I mentioned, that kind of joy, however, requires faith, repentance, obedience, trust. But at the end of all of that, is the, the ultimate pleasures of Christ, is the goodness, the experience of his goodness. And if someone is a believer, even pursuing those things, as difficult as they might be, John says in 1 John 5, 3, that his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. They're hard, to be sure. They're difficult to obey, but they're not burdensome to our soul. They're actually a delight to our soul. What is a burden to the soul of a believer is our sin and our corruption and our inability to live in light of the glory of Christ as much as we want. That's part of our hope of heaven. And so idolatry is the other side of it, where we can make too much. We can neglect God, and we, make, and we start to pursue other things to satisfy our soul. If I could use that illustration of the dinner friend again. It'd be like you take your friend to dinner, you have that same spread of food out before them, and they just start eating and eating and eating and enjoying it, and they're just having a great time, and they don't acknowledge you at all. And then when they're done, they get up to leave and go off to the next thing. And you'd be sitting there like, what? You know, I just blew all this money on you for you to enjoy, and you, you act like I'm not even there. That's the idea of idolatry. Enjoy, enjoy, take all of his things and then thumb our nose at God as if they aren't his good gifts for his glory. That's exactly what Paul said was the the heart of sin in Romans chapter one. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. But what do they do? They turn to the creation rather than the creator. It's idolatry. It's idolatry and a lack of thankfulness is at the heart of it. The heart of idolatry, one has said, Uh, Wherever it is, you always have to listen. The heart of idolatry then is that we receive creation not as a gift, but as a God. Creation, rather than being a means of enjoying a creator, there it is, rather than being a means of enjoying the creator, becomes his rival, and we become fixated and entranced on God's good gifts, seeking in them something that we will never be able to find. Sex, food, approval, wealth, family, friends, job, nature, government, all of these become God's rivals. Let me mention this. Calvin wisely noted in light of this, and you're familiar, many of you are familiar with this, that our hearts are like what? You remember? Idol factories. So the question is then, how do we follow Solomon's wisdom here, given by the Spirit of God, in our life, and, and not fall into the trap of idolatry, which is probably for us, most of us, the greater temptation? And the question is then, how do I identify an idol in my heart? Well, let me make this simple. It'd be nice to spend more time, but let me make this simple. How do you know that you have an idol in your heart? Something is, has passed from a, a, a righteous enjoyment of what God has given to an unrighteous enjoyment of what God has given. Two simple questions you can ask. Am I willing to sin to get it? Am I willing to sin to get it? Am I going to be angry if I don't get it? Will I be willing to lie or deceive to get it? Am I willing to manipulate to get it? to either show fake and hypocritical kindness or anger or sadness to convince someone to give me what I want if I'm angry enough or sad enough? 
Am I willing to sin in some way in my attitude or my actions to get it? Am I willing to neglect my duties that are my proper responsibility in order to get it? If so, then we can say that's, that's become something idolatrous in our hearts. It's idolatrous. I'm willing to sin, do whatever I can to get it. The second question we can ask is this. Am I willing to sin if I don't get it? If I don't get it? If this thing is withheld from me and I don't get it, do I get angry, depressed, anxious, neglectful, brooding, vengeful? Is my heart fallen because I didn't get this thing? Well, then we can go red light, red light goes off in our head. This is an idol. This is something that has become an idol that I need to repent of and turn back to the Lord. And so that's how we can, these are simple questions we can ask ourselves. Am I willing to sin to get it or am I willing to sin or do I sin if I don't get it? But what Solomon points us and what I want to emphasize and we'll kind of end it here, but is, can, is the, this true spiritual maturity, true wisdom, true understanding of the good things that God has given and how we enjoy them is this, is to be content. It's when we rest content in God's gifts and we enjoy them in their proper place and then we can experience, and this is the key, and taste God's goodness in them and actually be led to gratitude. Actually be led to gratitude. If I could, again, just, just keep working this illustration to the end, what, what would that look like? It, now you're at this meal again. You've taken this friend or someone that you love. You've spread out all of these good things for them because you want them to totally enjoy themselves. And they do. And they eat and they say, this is the best steak that I've ever had in my life. I love it. And they're just eating all of this and they're thrilled. And in the meal, meal and their enjoyment of what you've done for them, they're so thankful to you. And they just, I love you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for giving me this meal. It's fantastic. I enjoy it. And then your relationship is strengthened by that act of kindness. That would be a right view between God's good gifts. That we fully enjoy the gift and we go, this is great. Thank you. How good you are to me to give me this good thing that I can enjoy this vacation with my family, this whatever it could be, big, little, or small. We enjoy those good things. We don't shun them. We don't feel guilty because of them unless they were wrongly obtained. But we rather enjoy them as God's good gift. And that produces contentment. And it produces contentment in every deed that we do then in life. We can live in light of even the smallest mercies of God's and be thankful for them. And be thankful for them. One put this beautifully like this. I'm going to have to skip over some things. Uh, anyway, here, just listen. He put it this way. And, and the picture here that he gives, and I, this was really striking, I thought, uh, is of one who can learn to live content in the moment, in the moment that God has given. He said this, it is possible I have learned again and again to be in one's, oh, there it is. It is possible again and again, to be in one's place in such company, wild or domestic, and with such pleasure that one cannot think of another place that one would prefer to be or of another place at all. Being there is simply all, and it's enough. Such, time gives one, give, such times give one the chief standard and chief reason for one's work, to just enjoy it. I'm blessed right now in this moment. I have a satisfaction in it. I'm not seeking to be somewhere else. One connected it to the idea of shalom or peace. 
And it's the, uh, which is not just the absence of hostility, but rather living in positive harmony in all of our relationships, a right relationship with God in which we gladly serve him, a right relationship with others in which we joyfully live in community, and a right relationship with creation and nature that contains the other two. And delights in all of those is a good gift. It is contentment, contentment. Well, we're going to have to skip over some stuff, and I want to come as we come into the Lord's table and say this. Who is the one who enjoys this? He says this, um, verse 26, and this will take us into the table. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. When he says this too is vanity and striving after wind, he's referring there, the emphasis is on the one who is the sinner who's going to have to give up all of those things to the one who is good in God's sight. This is not works righteousness. The one who is good in God's sight is the one who trusts him, the one who fears him, the one who believes in his covenant promises. For us, this would be the one who is good in his sight is the one who is trusted in his son Christ, who has his life dwelling in them and who walks with him in obedience and faithfulness, following his commands and seeking to turn from sin and confessing and keeping up to date and short accounts in our life with God. To that person, there is the full enjoyment of what God has given. They can come with spiritual happiness, spiritual blessing. They can come with gratitude and thankfulness of heart, a strengthening of our relationship with God. But because God is the ultimate source of pleasure, it means our enjoyment of God is steadfast in times of blessing and in times of lack, in times of suffering and in times of peace. Because in all things, we then by faith would understand that at your hand are pleasures right more, evermore. And who and I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And to be at that place is to be a place of maturity and to be a trace of stability emotionally and to be at a place of true worship of God. Well, with that, let's prepare our hearts and take the Lord's table together. As you go to the table, confess, of course, any sin. We don't want to come in an unworthy manner. If there are areas of idolatry in your heart, confess those to the Lord now. Ask for his forgiveness. Ask for him to restore you. If there's broken relationships that you know that you are neglecting to seek peace, confess those to the Lord this is a place where we come not as perfectly pure sinners in ourselves, but we come as the redeemed who know within ourselves we have sin, but we are fighting that sin out of love for Christ. We come to this table reminding of his death on our behalf, his grace on our behalf, his goodness to us because of Christ. And so we come not as perfect as perfectly as perfect people, but we come as those who are trusting in the grace of Christ, who are committing ourselves to live for him and to love him and seeking his grace to strengthen us to do that each day after we live this place and we move on in the world. So let me pray and then we'll take these elements together. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, so overflowing and abundant. And in as much as that's true in all of the earthly things, so much of which we enjoy, it's true because of what we have in Christ. And so that we could ultimately say, even as Paul, when he suffered, that though the outer man decays, his inner man is being renewed day by day. 
because his heart is captured with all that is his in Christ. And we would want to know that. And we would want to know that contentment that comes from it. So Paul says, whether I have a lot or I have a little, I've learned the secret in all things of contentment. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. May Christ be our hope and our strength, our song and our joy singularly. And Lord, where we do have sin in our hearts and idols, let us expose them to us, search our hearts and know us and, and help us to be committed to, to deal with those and to replace them with faith in Christ. And even as we come to the table now, we commit this to you in your name, Jesus. Amen.